You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Welcome back, everyone. I am your host, Mike Brazier, and today we're going to be going up to sort of the northeastern part of uh, North America for a habitat update. We are recording this on July 14th, so we're going to be doing a bit of a look back on spring habitat conditions and the way things have unfolded since then and try to paint a bit of a picture on what folks might expect in terms of habitat conditions. conditions, what bird, what ducks and geese might have encountered whenever they went back up there. To help us with this conversation is a return guest on the podcast, Sarah Fleming, our Director of Conservation Programs for the Northeastern U.S. And Sarah is out of the Great Lakes Atlantic region. Sarah, it's great to have you back. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, looking forward to giving the update. How are things up there uh, mid-July? Uh, been doing any, anything exciting? Actually, I know you and Mike went on a little bit of a trip here recently, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, we did. So uh, Mike, my husband, and I headed up to St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, head over to the Maritimes to, to take a, a look at some of the seabird colonies um, in that particular area where there were about five days. It was really exciting and highly recommend it. Um, got a chance to see a lot of puffin colonies, uh, gallinules, um, Gannets, it's just incredible. It, it, there's three or four major ecological reserves up there. Uh, and it was really nice to be able to get out on some of the boats and see some, some of the project sites. But some of the most high, biggest highlights were watching, you know, humpback whales breaching 50 yards from shore and uh, being able to almost touch some of the northern gannet colonies that are up there. It was it was a really great time. So very relaxing. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. I saw some of the photos uh, online that, that you posted and just a remarkable landscape, remarkable observations of just those huge bird concentrations. Super, super cool. I was jealous. Unfortunately, we didn't see any eiders, but um, um, they are they are nesting up in that area, just uh, not where we were located. I can't be too jealous because <laughs> maybe about that same time, I was on the opposite side of the continent, the far edge of the Yukon Delta and Alaska, and I did see some eiders. I saw ah. some spectacled eiders, which was an absolute treat for me. Um, I haven't had a chance to talk about that on an episode yet, but we do have a few things lined up where we're going to be able to share some of those stories with some of the students and that were up there with us. So uh, yeah, getting away, those remote locations, the downtime, an opportunity to recharge 
charge and that's always great, isn't it? It it is absolutely and definitely needed. You know, we're kicking off our new fiscal year and it's really nice to kind of go out and kind of take a step back and see all the accomplishments and able actually to check out some of the Ducks Unlimited work that's going on there. I hit up some of their projects and it was kind of nice to see the, uh, the bigger landscape perspective. One of the things that we'll talk about here as we get into this conversation is, of course, the Canadian wildfires. Were y'all, did the smoke um, affect you on the on your vacation there? Um, a little bit. Uh, we were fortunate um, comparatively to some elsewhere in the country that has been dealing with some pretty significant um, uh, air quality warnings to the point where you shouldn't even be stepping outside your, your house. We had a little haze in the air, which did affect some of the uh, ability to just be able to see distances, but uh, no major warnings that were restricting our activity or requiring us to wear N9 masks. So fortunately that the winds were in our favor and um, didn't blow the smoke over to the Maritimes, but it just, it has happened. It just wasn't happening during the time we were there. Yeah. Well, that's good. And like I said, we'll touch on that here in a bit more, uh, a bit later on in the context of what, what those wildfires and those conditions might mean for breeding, for breeding waterfowl. I've had several people reach out to us asking about, uh, asking for sort of an assessment of what's this going to mean? Or is it going to impact breeding populations to a degree that we're going to, we'd be able to measure it or recognize it? Some of those comments came from folks uh, that I think have an interest in wildfire fires in the Western Canada. But of course, there's wildfires all across Canada right now, or at least there were, I don't, I don't know the current, to be honest, I don't know the current status of wildfire occurrence and severity across Canada right now, but like weaker two weeks ago, whenever I was looking, they were uh, quite abundant um, across that landscape. So we'll get into a little discussion of that. But Sarah, I believe we're prepared to talk about from a habitat condition update, three general geographies, and you can redefine these however is appropriate for the way you want to discuss them. Uh, Portions of the Great Lakes, uh, that's obviously uh, a vital area for some locally produced ducks. And so we have a little bit of an update there. Uh, Also, Eastern Canada, uh, the boreal forest and some of the other regions in that landscape, I think you have some information for us on. And then maybe some some, uh, input for the northeastern U.S. Did I capture that about right? That's right. Yep. All right. Well, which one would you like to start with? Well, uh, we might as well start going east to, or west to east if you want to do it that way, starting in the Great Lakes. Okay. Um, and the conditions uh, in the Great Lakes were very similar um, as you kind of head east through New York all, all the way over to New England area where uh, as Many listeners probably are aware we had a relatively dry spring in the Northeast. Um, However, uh, good news is a lot of our ducks in this particular landscape, um, or these particular areas, the ducks don't rely on those ephemeral wetlands and are not as uh, particular like they are in the prairies where dry conditions uh, don't have as much of a significant impact on on the breeding populations. So we're very happy that our our habitats in this part of the world are relatively stable. So a dry spring... um, doesn't set us back too far. Um, but the good news is we've been seeing a lot of uh, rain in the near <laughs> recently. And so any of those drier uh, ponds have been pre- um, regenerated and are providing some really good brood habitat right now. So that's all really good news in that respect. Um, and then if I jumping up a little bit further north into to the East Coast, into the uh, Eastern habitat area. Before you do that, I wanted to do a bit of a mental calendar of, of things. We had Talk to folks, it might have even been Mike that we spoke with back earlier in the year about how dry conditions were in like January, I think, in the northeastern U.S. I think it was, 
I don't remember the characterization of exactly how dry it was, but I know it it was it wasn't very conducive to moving birds around, creating new habitats during the hunting season. I recall that. But did those did those dry conditions in the northeastern U.S. kind of persist into spring, and then only recently we've started to see some improvements? Kind of help us with with that the timing of things. So yeah, as far as snow cover goes, we were relatively um, had less on average comparatively to maybe past years. So we did enter the spring uh, with with drier conditions, uh, warmer temperatures this past winter. Um, as you already alluded, we had a lot of birds stay a little bit further north just because it didn't get as cold and stuff didn't lock up as much. Uh, but the good news is these the, spring, the rains and stuff that have been happening over the last few months are helping regenerate a lot of those areas. And we did get some pretty big rains uh, early in the spring to help make up for that loss of the snow cover and availability of water. So we're, we're looking good. Um, and as we all know, wetlands, it's not a bad thing sometimes to enter these seasons with some, some dry periods that allow the wetlands to, to cycle and regenerate. And, um, and then when we get the heavy spring rains, we get some really good lush vegetation that will take off and provide that good nesting cover and brood habitat. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. That always useful reminder of of how wetland systems in that part of the continent are different from some of the others that dominate a lot of our conversation. Um, that's not to say things don't get dry there, as you as you described. I was reading a report, I think, related to one of the next areas you will talk about. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service pilots have recently completed their their surveys, and most of those pilots create some sort of a little report. Of of what they observed and, and some of them contrasted with what they've seen in past years. And there were, I mean, it was variable that they, the description from Maine all the way up into Eastern Canada was some locations had, had improving wetland conditions compared to droughts over the past couple of years. Uh, but then I think that, I don't know, I forget the actual geography where specifically that was referenced, but there was one place where uh, wetlands were noticeably lower in terms of water levels, but there were there's so many wetlands and they're semi permanent permanent type wetlands that there's still a lot of still a lot of habitat there. So anyway, just that kind of uh, despite the stability, I guess my point in saying all that is despite the general stability of those systems that we talk about, they still can demonstrate noticeable effects of drought. Right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I was able to talk to some of our. Um a waterfall biologist, um, and been to your point, you know, the, these habitats are very stable, but fortunately we haven't been able to link any kind of real meaningful relationships between really dry conditions and an effect on product production. Um, just because there's so much on the, ha- the habitat on the landscape and these wetlands do cycle comparatively to the prairies where there, that relationship is much more in flux. Well, then what about Eastern Canada? What were you able to, uh, to learn? What kind of contacts were you able to make to help us get an idea of how things might be looking there? Yeah, and again, very similar. The Northeast had very similar weather conditions. Um, and I'll give a shout out to our Ducks Limited Canada partners who uh, helped I mean, compile some some data for this report. Um, but Atlantic Canada, again, experienced a dry spring, but with relatively average temperatures. Um, the wetland, wa- uh, wetland water levels are providing good habitat conditions. Um, so they're very pleased to see a lot of the uh, broods and production that's going on there. Pretty much it's normal, um, maybe a little bit below normal in most, most areas. But um, as we've already indicated, uh, that's pretty standard. They're stable areas, so we're not 
no, no concerns there. And, um, you know, goose broods have started to appear. Um, so we've been seeing a lot of goslings running around, which is great. Um, and there's been seeing a lot of waterfowl sitting on nests. Um, so black ducks and mallards, and they're expecting those broods to be uh, showing up soon, soon in a lot of, in the areas where you'll be able to, to see them anyways. Um, and then the current uh, conditions are projecting that weather should continue the way it is and for and bode well for good brood success. Uh, lots of good uh, brood cover and uh, rearing habitat. And then um, assuming precipitation levels continue the way they are, we should be good going into the, uh, into the fall. So um, things are looking really good. And I do know our um, Fish and Wildlife Service and Canadian Wildlife Service partners will be finishing up uh, some of their banding or starting their banding in August. So we'll be having some more data on um, kind of Canada, Canada goose populations um, after they complete those surveys. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. What other information were you able to get from the Great Lakes? Anything um, anything from that area? Because I, I know going back to like in the spring... I don't remember what things, what conditions were like there over the winter period, but as they got into spring, I, I know their conditions were pretty good. But here over the past, I don't know, couple of months, things have really entered a dry trend. Any additional insight there from the Great Lakes? Uh, similar, uh, the Great Lakes had similar conditions. Um, you know, if we're talking Great Lakes north up into Ontario and then heading over to Eastern Canada as well as the New England area, I'd say similar trends. You know, we entered the spring dry with having less snow cover than average, um, but you know, rains and, and other conditions are allowing for, for good conditions. And similar to the Northeast here, the Great Lakes region has similar, similar with stable wetland conditions. Um, and we're not seeing as much of a flux in some of those areas. So I think all in all, we're going to have a, have a good production over here in the Northeast. Okay. I must be thinking about some of the more Western states in the, in the Great Lakes region that are, that are, at least they're starting to show some drought conditions based on some drought maps that I'm looking at. And, um, but that's, uh, that's not necessarily, as much of an issue for, let's say, uh, spring breeding conditions. When we get to this time of the year and we start thinking about drying conditions, it turns more to concern over brood habitat or maybe re-nesters and things of that nature, right? Yeah, that's definitely correct. And, I, and, you're, and you're right. I apologize. I wasn't thinking over towards Wisconsin. I was thinking more Michigan uh, East, <laughs> but uh, yes. <laughs> so yeah, you hit that right. Yeah. Okay. All good. I, I think you and I both talked briefly about some of the reports from Wisconsin, uh, their duck survey. I didn't look at the re- reports from any of the other states, but I know Wisconsin does a, a breeding duck survey every year. And I think the, the breeding population estimates for ducks in that state were about were similar to, pretty similar to where they were last year. Uh, I forget what their pond numbers were like or, um, in, in that report, but it seemed about average, I guess, if I'm, if I'm just trying to do a, a, a 
high level characterization of, of Wisconsin as the example, but you look at drought conditions now and things have certainly, I'm looking at the, like the July 11th drought map and there's actually starting to show up in Southern Wisconsin, some extreme drought conditions. So how that translates to changing water levels in that geography though, I'll have to admit that I don't know because I'm not as familiar with the wetland types there and what it takes to sort of dry up a wetland. Have you spent much time in Wisconsin or any of those landscapes? Unfortunately, I have not. My, my area mostly has been over from, uh, I'd say, Michigan East, um, but I'm assuming similar conditions where those those areas are a little bit more stable comparatively to the prairies. But as you start to move more towards the Midwest, you're going to start to see uh, similar prairie-like conditions where it will become more and more um important that we have water in order to fill those wetlands from, from spring rains. We'll bookmark that as a discussion topic for a future episode and maybe bring on, I uh, think, uh, Taylor Finger is the, is the state waterfowl biologist up there. He'd be a good one to get on. I don't think we've had him on as a guest before. So we'll, we'll bookmark that. So Taylor, if you're listening, know that you're on our list. So uh, the other topic that we did want to discuss, and, and you tell me if there's anything else to, to highlight here, Sarah, but wildfires and how... What should our reaction be? What should our, how should we think about those given the scale, given the intensity and any, like help us, help us think about what those wildfires mean from a waterfowl production standpoint this year, as well as long-term, the extent to which we have any understanding. Yeah. So it's definitely a very hot topic and we've been receiving a lot of uh, calls and inquiries about this topic. So I know it's something that's uh, a lot of our state and federal agencies are, are keeping close tabs on. Uh, I was able to get some reports from Canadian Wildlife Service and also the um, provincial um I guess, MNR, uh, Ministry of Natural Resources uh, agencies in Ontario and over in Quebec to help get a better handle on maybe what's going on up there. But um, it's not great in the sense that, you know, we're seeing huge number of fires continuing to burn and uh, listeners can go to, uh, there's some web pages online that you can go to and track uh, the, the fires that are burning across the entire expanse of, of the boreal forest in Canada. Um, I think some numbers I pulled today, it looks like we ha- there's all an active, almost 900 active fires right now across Canada. Um, and uh, 576 of those are considered to be uh, almost out of control or very highly dangerous. Um, so not great. Um, and many of the particular, um, the, 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 a lot of these areas are averaging almost um, 2.2 million hectares, which equates to 5.4 million acres uh, in size. So that's almost the size of Massachusetts when we start looking at the area that's being affected. So it was a little concerning, um, but the good news is in the respect that a lot of our biologists are not too concerned. Um, if we, we shift back to the Quebec area, um, boreal forests here in, um, over in the Northeast part, uh, there's been a, a paper published recently uh, or back in 2016 that has indicated that these particular fires in this boreal system are a natural occurrence. Although we've been seeing some increases with, with changing climate and, and increasing temperatures and fluctuations in precipitation. But um, these fires are, you know, their principal factor for disturbance and they, they really do a good job of setting back um, forests and regenerating and creating heterogeneity, helping with the production of wetland systems by regenerating and allowing uh, the vegetation to be set back. So the paper that was produced showed that... Um, Basically, waterfowl populations are pretty resilient. They've adapted to these type of systems. They're mobile. 
Um, and there's been no real strong correlation between um, fires uh, and uh, negative impacts on waterfowl production. So we're hopeful that those trends will continue. Uh, and we'll see that a lot of the fires burning right now in Quebec, some of the, the biggest and most dangerous ones are um, along James Bay. So that's northern parts of Ontario bordering Quebec. Um, fortunately, there's not a highly populated um, density of, of homes and cities in that area. So um, not seeing significant property damage, but from a waterfowl perspective, there's lots of femoral wetlands up there. Um, um, and lots of areas where they can uh, they can move to and and hopefully uh, continue their success with it. With so we're not seeing you know, the trends are hopeful that we will not see effects on our population this this year. Yeah, that that's good, and I appreciate you sharing that. The other thing that I would add to maybe I guess it just amplifies what you were saying that these are natural processes. And although they're scary and we, you know, from a, a human safety standpoint, we think about the wildlife affected by it and, and sure we can have those concerns, but but these are natural occurrences. I was having a, a conversation with Fritz Reed uh, a few weeks ago and we were talking about the wildfires in Western Canada and we got to talking about, I think I asked the question, what would be considered a an old tree in the boreal forest because when we think about these as natural processes that means they happen with some frequency right and he said that they it's a pretty short return rate or return frequency as to when you see the, like the time between subsequent fires in a given area and so to put a number on that I asked him what he would consider to be an old tree in the boreal forest and he said eh, you know maybe somewhere in the in the neighborhood of 40 years so that tells you that the return frequency on these fires is pretty short in the grand scheme of things so yeah it's it, it is it can be scary when you throw out 900 fires and several million hectares of of area affected but i think it also is a useful reminder that this is this continues to be a natural process the extent to which it may accelerate or become accentuated or more severe as a result of any other kind of activities is something that we'll continue to to study and then and and monitor i guess but uh, but yeah for now it sounds like sounds like folks should try to take this in stride and recognize that pretty much every year there's some degree of wildfire occurring across the boreal forest this is one of those years where it seems to be a bit more extreme right yeah it, it's just again it's just um, for one reason or another and I think a lot of the can um, people are asking how they get started and a lot of this again uh, natural occurrences a lot of them, them are through lightning strikes um, although some of them are a result of, of human fires or something but most of them are, are lightning strikes um, and a lot of the data supports that a, a lot of our, our boreal waterfowl, um, you know, when they select critical nesting areas, they're really looking for high quality brood rearing lakes and um, as opposed to nesting habitat uh, as their particular area they want to hone in on. And the, the good news is that a lot of these uh, fires, um, the regeneration uh, of these quality brood rearing habitats and the nesting cover, you know, the vegetation will respond in less than a year. So even if a fire goes through and causes a significant amount of devastation, um, these habitats will bounce back relatively quickly and um, and it'll, the good news is it'll be available to the birds next year. Yeah, very good. It actually reminds me of some of the discussions that we hear and and uh, about the, the beneficial effects of fire in other landscapes, whether we're talking about how it can be used to enhance management for wild turkeys or other ground nesting birds. Uh, so, yeah, it's... I think there's always a useful education point to be made when these types of things, uh, when these types of things occur. Uh, we'll have, we will have, I'll make the point here that in about a month, we'll have uh, estimates from 
The waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey, that report is expected out mid to late August. And so that report will contain uh, the numbers from the areas that we've talked about here. It will, it will also include some, some more descriptions of habitat conditions encountered during the survey. So that information is something we'll look forward to. Anything else, Sarah, that is worth talking about that you wanted to mention here before we look to wrap up? No, just uh, looking forward to a productive fall. Um, really excited about some of the uh, northeast uh, increases in bag limits and some of our opportunities here. So mallard bag limit is going back up as well as the uh, um, Canada goose. So I know all our waterfowl hunters will be very pleased to hear that. And with conditions looking the way they are, we're expecting to have a, a good production and, and hopefully a, a really good fall flight. Well, hey, I'll pass along my, my well wishes to you and your husband, Mike, and I know it will not be long before you start uh, dusting off those decoys and making sure the waders don't have holes in them and, and kind of mapping out where it is you're going to be hunting this year. So uh, we're not, not, it feels odd to say it's July and we're not too far away from it and we're still battling 95 degree temperatures, but it gets here in a hurry, doesn't it? It does. And, and I could tell you a funny story sometime about how important it is to check your waders for holes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people that have that funny story, yeah. <laughs> me included. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, we will we'll look for opportunities to catch up with you again sometime between now and, and uh, well, sometime throughout the hunting season. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you and uh, you and Mike and appreciate all the work that you and your staff are doing in, uh, in the northeastern U.S. to help deliver the important conservation work of Ducks Unlimited and um, thank all the supporters that you have there. And so, so thanks a lot, Sarah. It's great, great having you. Yeah, thank you. And again, Al, just kudos to the uh, volunteers and members and our team over here. We um, wouldn't, couldn't do it without us, the support of everyone uh, making this uh, you know, successful program. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Sarah Fleming, a Director of Conservation Programs for the Northeastern U.S., working out of the Great Lakes Atlantic region. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, who does a terrific job with all of these episodes and getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your support of the podcast, and we thank you for your commitment to wetlands and water waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.